Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Over the last several weeks, ISIS has been systematically losing territory. Its last stronghold in Iraq, the city of Hawija, was liberated in early October. A few weeks later, ISIS's de facto capital in Raqqa, Syria, fell to U.S.-backed forces. Now, ISIS no longer controls any major city in the region. With ISIS mostly defeated on the ground, the international community is starting to think through some difficult and fraught questions about how best to bring ISIS to justice for war crimes and crimes against humanity committed during their brutal reign. On the line with me to discuss some of these questions that the international community is weighing and also some key obstacles for bringing justice to those who committed war crimes in Iraq and Syria is Dr. Zachary Kaufman. Zachary Kaufman is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and teaching at Stanford Law School. He is also, like me, a Humanity in Action senior fellow. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll note that he spoke with me just a few weeks back about a pending case at the U.S. Supreme Court called Jessner versus Arab Bank that it could have big implications for U.S. foreign policy and human rights. I thought to post this interview now because ISIS is very much on the run and these questions about justice and accountability are suddenly becoming increasingly relevant. And if you're listening to this episode contemporaneously, I think it pairs very well with my conversation with Peter Galbraith posted this week, which discusses his efforts to bring accountability to those responsible for genocide against minority communities in the region. Sometimes, serendipitously, two episodes in the same week speak to similar themes and similar issues, and this is one of those weeks. As always, please feel free to get in touch with me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I always love hearing from you. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Zachary Kaufman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Both the current and former uh, U.S. Secretaries of State have both characterized some of the atrocity crimes perpetrated by ISIS as genocide, and so has the European Parliament and the U.N. Commission of Inquiry on Syria. And so this is uh, a really significant step in the direction of promoting accountability and justice for ISIS. Um, to, the, for the, the, the genocide in question was a genocide committed against the Yazidi population in, well, the, in the Iraq. US, 
the U.S. Secretary of State, um, both uh, the current one, Rex Tillerson, and former one, John Kerry, identified genocide as being committed by ISIS not only against Yazidis, but also against Christians and Shia Muslims. Um, and then as, both of them also stated that um, ISIS is responsible for crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing directed against those groups, but also in some cases against um, Sunni Muslims, uh, Kurds, and other minorities. So while a lot of attention has been focused on the plight of Yazidis, um, there are also uh, other uh, religious minority groups that have been uh, persecuted, possibly constituting genocide as well. And and this seems to be a good time to talk about these issues. I mean, as we're recording this, ISIS is uh, losing territory and losing its sort of last bits of, of territory that it's held in parts of Iraq and, and Syria. So look, what are the prospects for justice for war crimes committed by ISIS in uh, Iraq right now? And I well, know we sort of have to separate Iraq and Syria, right? So you're right that um, that certainly there's been a um, there have been significant developments in the conflict with ISIS. And just as with other conflicts throughout history, whether and when and how a conflict ends is directly related to the prospects for justice and accountability um, afterwards. Um, it's no coincidence, of course, that the vanquished in World War II, for example, um, had war crimes tribunals erected against them to prosecute their atrocity crimes. And the same has been, you know, the case in uh, the genocide uh, against the Tutsi in, in Rwanda, um, as well as in uh, the Balkans. So um, you're right that the timing is significant and hopeful for some sort of accountability to be brought uh, against um, ISIS. And And you're also right, of course, that the contexts in Syria and Iraq are different and significantly so. So um, in Iraq, we have a government that is cooperating with the uh, the United Nations Security Council, including on this most recent resolution 2379 that was unanimously adopted by the Security Council last month on September 21st, um, to pursue accountability for atrocity crimes perpetrated in Iraq by ISIS. And so having the consent, the cooperation of the host government is uh is incredibly helpful, of course, for, for gathering evidence and then um, possibly uh, pursuing prosecutions within the, within the country. Now, in Syria, of course, it's a very different context where the Assad regime itself is implicated in many of the atrocity crimes um, that the UN is investigating. Uh, and the Syrian um, regime under um, Bashar al-Assad um, is not cooperating um, with the uh, the investigation. And so, you know, that sets up obstacles and complexities to gathering evidence and then um, probably a, a longer timeline um, for any sort of justice mechanism to be uh, established and pursued. On, on Syria, though, it does seem that evidence is being collected nonetheless. Every six months or so, they put out new reports that just, you know, are that that can be you know considered as mounting evidence of war crimes and even you know genocide uh, occurring in in Syria as well, but they rely on sort of the testimony of of dissidents and the testimony and other sort of testimonies that have been and, and evidence that's been sort of smuggled to them, but they do not have access to to you know the Syrian territory itself. That's right. Um, there are uh, in fact two um, bodies that the United Nations has set up. One unprecedented uh, in history um, to address atrocity crimes in Syria. The first 
um, investigative body um, was set up by the UN uh, Human Rights Council that was established in 2011 um, and is a commission of inquiry on Syria. And then more recently, just uh, a little less than a year ago in December of 2016, the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, created the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, um, also known as the IIIM, um, on Syria. And as um, various of my colleagues and others have pointed out, um, it's unprecedented that the UN General Assembly would establish such an investigative mechanism to uh, to probe atrocity crime. So there are multiple uh, investigative mechanisms. I also would hasten to add that there are various NGOs, um, both Syrian, uh, both led by Syrians um, and by non-Syrians um, who are involved uh, that are also collecting evidence. And as you mentioned, uh, much of that evidence is collected outside of Syria, either by, uh, you know, interviewing um, refugees or um, or others who uh, have, are survivors and witnesses. Um, but also, I would mention that some have been incredibly brave um, at, at great risk to themselves to um, also obtain and smuggle out documents um, from within Syria. I also know of um, some who have buried uh, documents in Syria um, with the hope that later, um, when when the area is more secured, um, that those documents could be and other evidence could be unearthed. So, you know, under normal circumstances in, in Syria, at least, it would be the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court to uh, use this evidence that's being collected and mount war crimes cases against, you know, alleged perpetrators of war crimes and mass atrocities. But, uh, of course, Syria is not a member of the International Criminal Court, and the only way that jurisdiction could be extended to Syria would be through a vote in the Security Council over which Russia holds a veto and has been willing and 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 eager, it seems, at times to use its veto to stop any sort of accountability mechanism mechanism for crimes committed in Syria. So I guess my question is, if the International Criminal Court is kind of out of the question, where will this evidence go? And under what circumstances do you see people actually sitting in a courtroom one day facing trial for these crimes? So before I um, comment on the alternatives to the ICC, let me, let me comment a little bit on what you've just mentioned, which is the ICC itself. Um, so as you mentioned, um, not only is Syria not a state party to the Rome Statute, the underlying treaty of the IC, but Russia has been obstructionist in um, in pretty much any effort to uh, to hold accountable Syria for for atrocity crimes. In fact, just recently, Syria blocked a, a ninth uh, effort within the uh, within the Security Council to um, try to promote accountability. Um, within Syria, and of course, the reason for chemical is, weapons for the chemical weapons use is, is that's what right. you're referring so to. It, they 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 blocked the renewing the mandate of this UN mechanism to investigate uh, chemical weapons use and assign blame for people to people who have used these weapons. Russia just vetoed that resolution recently. That's exactly right, and so it's important, I think, to add to the context when we're talking about the ICC that there are other measures, other accountability measures that Russia is also um, blocking and. Um, you know, as we know, the reason reason is because Russia is allied with uh, the Assad regime. Russia has its own interests uh, in Syria. And also Russia has been implicated uh, in some of the offenses that have been perpetrated uh, in Syria. So yeah. part of the motivation on, on, you know, the Putin administration side is um, self-protection um, and, uh, and to promote its own uh, interests and to promote its ally, uh, to safeguard its ally. 
Um, and this is an ongoing problem. Um, and because of the um, Russia wields one of the five permanent member veto options in the Security Council, um, it's able to stymie, you know, meaningful uh, accountability measures within the Security Council. So, so, what, um, so what else exists then? If, if not the ICC, where can this evidence go that, that you've referred to? So some, um, there have been some experts and, and other observers on, on, the, um, on Syria that have discussed a potential uh, hybrid tribunal uh, that might be created um, as occurred, for example, in the cases of um, Sierra Leone and um, Cambodia uh, after the atrocities that they suffered as well. So this, it probably would not be possible, um, unlike in the cases of Syria or um, Cambodia, to host such a tribunal um, on site. It certainly would not be uh, possible when the Assad regime is um, hostile uh, to it. Um, but perhaps it could be held um, offsite. Also, um, you know, other um, and I international... should say by hybrid tribunal, you mean a combination of Syrian judges and international judges. That's right. Um, you could um, hybrid tribunals combine not only um, staff, as you mentioned, um, so you could have a combination of international and, and domestic from Syria um, jurists uh, and and prosecutors and other staff. But also laws um, from uh, from the domestic uh, jurisdiction as well as uh, international laws. So hybrid tribunal would be um, you know uh, one possibility. But wouldn't um, that sorry sorry to interrupt? But wouldn't that still require an act of the Security Council to to approve that? So it it, it may or may not. Um, You're the liar. Uh, it it also could be. <laughs> I'll ask um, you, yeah. It also could be theoretically created by the uh, General Assembly. Um, so. The General Assembly, of course, um, benefits from not having um, the possibility of any particular country like, for example, Russia, um, exercise veto um, power over it. And so the General Assembly might um, be an, an alternative uh, forum um, for creating uh, such a, a mechanism. Um, other alternatives, um, other accountability and justice alternatives for atrocity crimes in Syria are third party investigations um, and prosecutions, which are uh, proceeding, um, particularly in Europe. So various um, suspected perpetrators have fled uh, to, um, to certain European countries. And so they're, uh, um, you know, uh, developing cases against some of these um, individuals as they're um, found. Oh, so um, like, like if, if there's like a, a suspect in Belgium or, or France, then you could build, uh, you could use the evidence that's been collected by these NGOs and by these UN bodies, theoretically, in a case brought in like a domestic European court. That, that's right. Um, and, and, you know, Spain, for example, is, is um, one of the places where, um, where such, uh, um, you know, cases are being uh, developed and, and pursued. Um, now, I, I would hasten to add, though, that um, those sorts of cases can un can sometimes be controversial. Um, often they're they're asserted under a principle called universal jurisdiction, um, which some countries, um, sometimes including the United States, um, objects to. Um, they they sometimes object to this idea that if there's too much of a tenuous relationship with the um with the the state bringing the case um that it's um it's invalid to uh, legally so to to bring such a case and so um it's not without some controversy that that some of these cases are proceeding and yet um i think that there's an acknowledgement among many that 
um, where Syria is unwilling or unable um, to um, prosecute and where the ICC is uh, unavailable, is being blocked, um, that, you know, uh, the international community needs to be uh, creative and somewhat flexible, perhaps, um, in pursuing alternative accountability mechanisms. Uh, but it's probably worth noting that unless, you know, the politics change substantially, you know, Assad, the, the government of Syria to, are, are not likely to face any sort of um, criminal prosecution anytime soon. So, um, per, yeah, certainly not um, anytime soon while they remain in office. And, you know, we can point to others who have been um, not only suspected of, but even indicted for atrocity crimes like Omar al-Bashir uh, in Sudan, um, that also, um, you know, uh, remain out of the reach of justice, uh, mechanisms. However, I would add that, um, you know, it, it came as a great surprise to many that, um, Slobodan Milosevic was ultimately, uh, 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 captured and prosecuted by the UN International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And that it, you know, it wasn't long after, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, um, that many of the leaders of uh, those atrocity crimes uh, face justice. And so I think that there is reason to hope um, that uh, accountability and justice can be achieved, even for a place um, uh, like Syria, um, because we have historical examples. And this is all the more reason that evidence should be collected and preserved and stored um, you know, when, when possible, uh, including right now, um, to pave the way for possible um, prosecutions in the future, which may, may occur at, at any time. I mean, we, it, it's hard to know when, um, you know, uh, the reality on the ground will change in a place like uh, Iraq or in a place like Syria, or for that matter, Myanmar or Yemen or Burundi, um, which are also, um, are other places where the United Nations is pursuing investigations of serious violations of international law, um, you know, in, in those places as well. Uh, you know, uh, the reality may change such to um, permit uh, the possibility of, of prosecutions. And, and it's, you know, it's worth pointing out, you and I first met at the War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, in 2003 uh, during Slobodan Milosevic's trial. And, you know, who would have thought you know, 10 years earlier, even, you know, six years earlier, that that's where, you know, he would be. That's right. And, and again, I think that that gives us hope. I think, you know, the experiences that you and I have had, um, been fortunate to have in, um, in that sort of work, um, you know, just, just underscore the, the point that, um, you know, we, we can remain optimistic that, um, sometimes justice, can indeed be achieved, um, regardless of how elusive it seems in the present. So I, I wanted to talk about Iraq because the the circumstances are much different, as you said earlier, because it is a government that uh, is cooperating to a certain extent uh, with the international community in terms of um, you know collecting evidence of war crimes against ISIS and you know, hopefully other potential perpetrators of, of war crimes as well. But can you tell me uh, what? was that resolution 2379 that you referenced. It happened at the tail end of UNGA week, and it was a very substantive outcome, I'd say, of of UN week in, in New York in uh, September. Can you describe what that resolution stated and how it might contribute to an eventual bring to justice of perpetrators of war crimes in Iraq? 
Certainly. Um, so on September 21st, uh, the Security Council unanimously passed this resolution, 2371, uh, and it focuses um, specifically on ISIS. And, um, and that's, that's a key point uh, of, the, um, of the resolution. And it's also what uh, enabled um, or motivated, perhaps, uh, the government of Iraq to, uh, to consent. So essentially what it does is it establishes an investigative team, which is headed by a special advisor um, that's, uh, you know, supporting uh, Iraq's efforts to hold ISIL accountable by collecting, preserving, and storing evidence um, of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide committed by ISIS in Iraq. Um, and it's important to note that it doesn't mention um, atrocity crimes committed by anyone in Iraq. It specifically focuses on ISIS. Uh, and so for that reason, some have criticized, uh, some including, uh, for example, you know, Human Rights Watch, um, have criticized the resolution for being flawed or short-sighted or selective um, by not, for not, um, uh, you know, focusing um, on it, serious violations of international law writ large. Um, and of course, it, it um, you know, is, is no coincidence that it focuses on ISIS and Iraq um, consented because um, Iraq itself um, has been implicated uh, uh, in, in committing uh, crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's worth pointing out that a lot of these you know, human rights reports, specifically from Human Rights Watch, have documented Iraqi security forces and Iraqi-backed security forces having recently liberated um, Sunni towns from ISIS would exact revenge on the Sunni population of that, uh, town. So that they're, you know, they're, it's, it's, um, it's a problem and it's a big That's problem. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, uh, I think history shows that, that when, uh, the international community is, um, not thorough and comprehensive in its addressing of, um, offenses, uh, in a, in a particular context that can lead to ongoing, uh, grievances and feelings, um, of, um, you know, lack of accountability that can fuel, uh, you know, uh, future, um, hostilities between groups. And, um, and so the, the, the kind of, uh, narrow scope, the selective scope, um, of the resolution is both, um, deliberate, as well as um, in the eyes of many, uh, problematic. But this shouldn't, um, you know, keep us from recognizing um, just how significant this uh, this resolution is. Um, anyone from sort of, you know, a range of, of people from Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley to uh, Amal Clooney, who have been who has been extremely involved in representing Yazidi victims of ISIS tri uh, crimes, have praised the. Uh, resolution as as a landmark or a milestone um, in uh, promoting uh, the rights of and giving a voice to victims and bringing suspected perpetrators at least of ISIS um, from ISIS uh, to account and and that is um, extremely significant uh, even if the the overall resolution is is narrowly focused. Um so is it expected then that if this resolution, you know, is, is implemented, you know, fully that eventually perpetrators of ISIS war crimes would, you know, face justice in the Iraqi court system? It certainly, um, you know, could be that case that that's the intention of the Iraqi government. And um, the impetus behind the, uh, the resolution is to help the Iraqi government 
um, do that. There's there's various language in the resolution that strongly suggests that the um, at least initial or default um, forum for uh, accountability for ISIS um, perpetrators um, would be in the Iraqi uh, court system. Um, now, there are certain challenges that, that still need to be addressed. Not all atrocity crimes are codified in Iraqi uh, law. And so um, in order to fully hold ISIS responsible for um, the, the full panoply of crimes that have been committed, um, uh, you know, there needs to be, um, some adjustment in, um, in Iraqi, uh, criminal law. Um, in addition, um, you know, there needs to be some sort of, uh, reconciling of priorities. Um, so, um, in, in the recent past, Iraq, the Iraqi government has mostly focused on ISIS as a perpetrator of uh, terrorism, so the, the crime of, of terrorism, less focused on other human rights violations, um, including, for example, uh, rape. And as we know, um, ISIS um, has perpetrated in a very widespread and systematic nature um, rape and other um, uh, sexual crimes and gender-based crimes. Can I ask, like, why does that actually matter, what they're charged with, so long as these perpetrators are, are in jail? For us to establish the full history, the full um, record of what um, ISIS, um, or for that matter, any other uh, group and individual has done, um, they need to be charged with, um, you know, the, the, a proper and accurate um, list of, of crimes. We need to um, recognize what has been um, perpetrated to establish history and also to recognize and acknowledge the, um, all of the, the victims of, of crimes. Um, furthermore, um, it helps by acknowledging and identifying um, and pursuing accountability for, um, for the, the full list of crimes, including uh, uh, sexual and gender-based crimes, um, you know, who, who the populations of victims are, what their um, physical and psychosocial needs are in order to properly um, assist them. Um, so, we, we absolutely need to understand um, and pursue holistically uh, the full range of, of crimes that um, ISIS has perpetrated. So I'm, I'm sure you remember that grainy cell phone footage of Saddam Hussein uh, sort of getting executed at the end of like a show trial. Um, what, uh, I guess, like what, like how could like this time around uh, that be done differently in, in terms of, of, uh, of prosecuting ISIS perpetrators. I mean, there is a sense of, of that was just like a victor's justice. Mm -hmm. Um, but it obviously didn't lead to much peace thereafter. So how can sort of the format of, of the trial and the format of the prosecutions lead to a more lasting sort of peace and a more peaceful society in, in Iraq? So this is a, it's a great question, Mark. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a question that, um, you know, sort of will only be answered in time. The resolution that was uh, passed by the security council last month, um, does mention due process standards. So, um, first of all, that the evidence should be collected, preserved and stored, um, according to the highest possible standards. And then that it should also be used in fair and independent criminal proceedings consistent with applicable international law. Um, and so, you know, one of the lessons learned as you're, as you're pointing out from Iraq is that not only 
um, you know, should justice be done, but that it be seen to be done um, in a in an even handed, a fair, equitable um, a way that that is recognized as as such. And so this is something that's on you know everybody's mind. Um, you know how how fair what what will be the due process standards of the the you know Iraqi courts that um, will investigate and prosecute um, hold accountable um, uh, ISIS perpetrators and and it's a, it's an outstanding question that is that has yet to be resolved. But again, the resolution itself um, does emphasize that that the evidence um, should be uh, collected and used in, in ways that comport with international standards of due process. So maybe just to, to wrap up one kind of big picture, big picture question for you, like, why does this matter? Like, why does pursuing justice in these cases matter? There are lots of reasons why, um, why justice matters. One is, um, uh, you know, some of them are backward looking, some of them are forward looking. So the backward looking uh, reasons why pursuing justice in a case like ISIS is important is to establish a, an accurate and full record of what happened. Um, it's to to hold um, individuals and even groups accountable um, for for what they did um, and um, to to punish them uh, where where appropriate and how appropriate in a forward looking way. Um, it's important in order to deter uh, others um, from perpetrating similar uh, crimes um, and also to, you know, sort of promote a sense of um, reconciliation and, and healing um, for the for the extremely difficult uh, path forward. Um, also, um, of course, victims and survivors are central um, to um, to forward looking uh, concerns that. Um, that the international community and, and, uh, and the local jurisdiction, for example, in Iraq, um, properly address, protect, um, help, help um, survivors and victims recover um, from the uh, brutal um, uh, trauma that they have suffered. Uh, well, Zach, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Zachary for speaking with me and want to make one last plug that you should become a premium subscriber to the show and unlock bonuses like my Don's Digest, Global News Clips, Service Bonus Episodes, and my Knowledge Pack, which contains my own personal cheat sheet for how I bone up on an international affairs issue in two hours or less. It's kind of the steps in the process that I go through to prepare for some of these interviews. And it can be yours if you become a premium subscriber. So please do consider signing up. Thank you all. See you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.